Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to their dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. All right, we're continuing our study in the book of Romans, Romans 1, 18 through 32, and that's the place we're going to be at this morning. And you might be familiar with this television show. I think it's a fairly popular television show. It's called Jeopardy. I just want to make sure every now and then I make a reference that clearly nobody knows about. You've heard of Jeopardy. It's a game show. It's hosted by Alex Trebek, and it's a quiz show where people are tested on their knowledge of lots of different subjects. And what's unique about this particular show is uh, they don't actually ask questions, they provide answers. Uh, so an answer is displayed, uh, and then the person has to answer in the form of a question. So the contestant will say, I'll take football for 200, Alex, and it will say, uh, the NFL team in Seattle. And the person, if they're doing it right, will respond in the form of a question, what is the Seattle Seahawks? And so they answer in the form of a question. So an answer is given, uh, and the The question is, well, what's the correct question? And so today's passage, Romans 1, 18 through through 32, is the answer. And, And what we ought to do is understand very clearly what the question is, because if we don't understand what the question is, the answer doesn't make a lot of sense. And so we need to understand what the question is that we're trying to answer with Romans 1, 18 through 32. So let's start with this, just as a way of reminder. What is the theme of the book of Romans? The theme of the book of Romans is the gospel. Good news. Uh, can be summed up this way. Sinners need saving. And so God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross that sinners might be saved. He rose from the dead that sinners might live forever, having been forgiven of their sins. So this is the theme 
of the book of Romans is the gospel. And so let's look again, Romans 1, 16 and 17. You've got it there maybe in your Bible. It's just the two verses before the section today. We covered it a little bit last week. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For it is in it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith for faith. So the gospel, the theme of the book of Romans, is the power of God for salvation. So therefore, what's the question? What do we need to be saved from? If the gospel is the power of God for salvation, we then ask, well, what do we need to be saved from? What is it that is uh, requiring salvation? The answer, Romans 1, 18 through 32. The theme of the book of Romans is the gospel. The question is, the the gospel tells us we need to be saved. And the question is, what do we need to be saved from? And the answer is Romans 1, 18 through 32. We need to be saved from sin. In particular, two forms of sin that we're going to cover this morning. There is good news in the gospel. There is good news for those who deny God. And there is good news for those who do whatever they want. So that's what our passage is doing this morning. In context of the book of Romans, it's telling us there's good news. There's good news for particular kinds of people. I've got really good news for you, but the good news only applies if you fit in one of these two categories. And here's the two categories. Are you ready? Just told them to you. There is good news for those who deny God. And there is good news for those who do whatever they want. And you may be saying, well, what if I'm not one of those? I have no good news for you. The good news applies to these. So if you are not one of these, I have no good news for you. At the end of the passage, you're going to understand you are one of these. You are both of them ten times over. But let's let's get there. I don't want you to leave yet. Some of you may be storming out. So let's start with this. Verses 18 through 23. There is good news for those who deny God. There is good news for those who deny God. A movie came out a long time ago. I'm not going to give you the name because it's inappropriate in a lot of ways, but it's a fantastic movie. See, now you're curious. Some of you will guess it, and right now you're going to try and guess it. So what happened to this guy? There's a guy, and he experienced a personal tragedy, and what he's doing in his life is he is trying to get justice for this personal tragedy. Now what happened? When this tragedy occurred, he was injured. And as a result... He can only remember the last 10 minutes of his life. That gives it away. Some of you know already what I'm talking about. Okay, but I'm not going to tell you. You're Googling it. So he can only remember the last 10 minutes of his life. So he was injured when this happened. He's working hard to find the bad guys that did this to him. The problem is anything longer than 10 minutes ago, he forgets. So if he's having a conversation with somebody and that conversation goes longer than 10 minutes, he will reintroduce himself to the person because he forgot their name. And at a certain point, he will forget what the conversation is about. Some of you are going, but that sounds like Monday. (laughs) How was that different? But for that, it was just 10 minutes. Now, in his investigation of this great injustice, seeking the bad guys, he had a, a comprehensive file that he kept with him, taking all of the notes that he would find. And then what he would do is he would constantly be reviewing that folder. Because remember, he's only going to remember it for 10 minutes. He has to constantly be reading it and keeping it in his mind and then making notes and adjusting his notes on his investigation. Well, in the course of his investigation, he finds out something he didn't want to discover. He finds out that things aren't actually the way he thought they were. 
He finds out, in fact, the way things actually are, are it ruins everything. He, he, he doesn't want what he discovered to actually be true because it ruins his idea of what was actually going on here. So what does he do? This new information in his notebook, he just, he just erases it and writes in what he wants to be true. Why does he do that? In 10 minutes from now, he will have forgotten that new information and his life will be back to normal because now it will be the way he wants it. He can write in the way he wants things to be. And this is what's going on, is humankind has discovered what God is like and we have decided to try and write him out of reality. Look what it says, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We discover when we discover God that our life isn't the way God would want it to be. And so our effort is to write God out of existence. If God doesn't exist, what does that mean? That whatever I want to do and however I want to operate is just dandy. So that we are confronted with the reality that God is, and we don't like it. So we want him to write him out of existence in our life. And what the Bible calls this is this is a worship problem. The problem at fundamentally is we want to deny God or we want to remake God in our own liking, even in the face of obvious evidence, because we want to create something to worship that we want. And most of the time that thing is going to end up looking like us. There's good news for those who deny God and humans deny God because we discover God and it turns out we don't like what we discover. And so instead of dealing with the reality of God as he is, we decide to rewrite reality to our liking and to our own making. Look at verse 18 again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Let's stop there. We've got to deal with wrath. Some of us don't like wrath. Some of us are really bothered by wrath. The problem is when we read the word wrath in the Bible, we are reading the right word and thinking the wrong meaning. When you read the word wrath, you're thinking road rage. That's what you're thinking. Or if you watch Dude Perfect videos on YouTube, you're thinking of the rage monster. Right? Every time we see the rage monster, I, I would say my sons laugh hilarious, but I, I laugh with them. It's hilarious. Now, some of you are saying, what's the rage monster? Go find out. You'll laugh, okay? So this is what we think of with wrath. It's some capricious, short-fused, anything sets them off, and they just go from zero to 100 in the anger mode instantly. That's what we read in the word wrath, but that's, that's not what this word means. Let me ask you a question. If your car was stolen, and they discover the person who stole it, and that person admits to stealing it, do you think that person should give you your car back? If the car is damaged, that person reimburse you for the cost to repair the car? And if the car is destroyed, should that person reimburse you for the cost to replace your car? In the interim, should that person have provided transportation for you while you have to get your car repaired or replaced? Do you think this is appropriate? You're, you're hesitant to answer. Yeah, that's wrath. 
That, that's all it is. It is simply wrong was done and it ought to be made right. That is, that is in its essence what wrath is. Now certainly it can be expressed in anger. The problem is you and I see anger as out of control, whereas anger for God is wrong was done, it must be made right, and God always expresses precisely the amount of anger that ought to be expressed for the situation, okay? Uh, your kids might say this from time to time. Yeah, they do something wrong. They spill milk onto the counter, and you get upset. And the kid would never say this because they uh, like living. Uh, Dad, you are, I just destroyed the car upset for a glass of milk spilled event. You, know, you ever done that? And I've said this to my kids many times. Listen, I had every right to be upset with what you did. However, I was probably more upset than I needed to be. And that's a fair thing to say. God is never more upset than he needs to be. He is always, always precisely as upset as the infraction ought to be. That's what wrath of God is. That's what wrath is. Why is the gospel needed? Because God responds appropriately to our desire to worship creation instead of him. Look what it says. The wrath of God's revealed who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Verse 20, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. By observing creation, we can see there is God, he is powerful, he is eternal, and he is in charge. It is a tremendous amount of work to write God out of existence. I would suggest this, and I know I'm talking to the home team, it is more difficult to come to the conclusion there is no God than to come to the conclusion there is a God. This time of year, you're going to go to your favorite store, whether it be Walmart or Target or whatever, and there is going to be a rack of calendars because it's almost time to buy a new calendar. And a lot of those calendars are going to be what? National parks, pictures of beaches, sunset vistas. Why is this? Why is it if you wake up in Yosemite and you see the sun shining at first light on Al Capitan or in Half Dome, it takes your breath away? Why when you stand on the, on the edge of Crater Lake in the deep blue waters and the cool breeze, do you just kind of in a moment just go, holy cow, do you think the thing is taking your breath away? No, what's happening is the, the one who made the thing is taking your breath away. And what we work diligently to do is convince ourselves it is just cool because Crater Lake's big. It is cool because God is big enough to make Crater Lake on a whim. And we work diligently to write him out of our life. We don't like the idea there is somebody that big, somebody that powerful, that wants us to live a particular way. And so what we do is like that guy in the movie. We encounter God who says, your life ought to be this way, not this way. And if it's wrong, I will do what I need to do to make it right. And we say, you know what would be great is if you didn't exist. And we write him out of existence. Creation tells us there's a powerful God worthy of worship. Humans are, in fact, made to worship. That we are designed by God in our inner person to worship. That is a primary function 
of the human person is to look at the world around us, see a beautiful mountain, see a beautiful tree, see a beautiful person, and say, there is a God, and he ought to be worshipped. Instead, we see a beautiful mountain, a beautiful tree, a beautiful person, and we say, I'm going to worship that thing. Because that thing will never ask me to live a particular way. That thing will always allow me to do whatever I want. But that's the next part of the message. We always worship something. This is what's interesting about living in a more and more secular culture. The problem is with our culture, and by our culture, I do mean us as well. Our secular culture says, uh, I am basically a mass of uh, carbon-based systems that find some way to operate in other carbon-based systems. And so we think we're just merely material. We're just merely stuff walking around. But somehow in us, we, we feel this need to worship because we're designed to worship. Somehow in us, even if we want to be completely secular and completely humanist, there's something in us that says there is more out there. There's something immaterial. And so this is why we have more and more the rise of people who would describe themselves this way. And I think it's terribly interesting. Spiritual, but not religious. Have you heard this phrase? You know what? I'm spiritual, but not religious. I love this. It proves God exists. Here is a person, and we all do this. I, I want to deny that God exists. I don't like somebody above me who can tell me what ought to be. But I cannot, for all of my efforts, for all of my efforts to write God out of existence in my inner person, I cannot somehow get rid of this notion that I ought to worship. Because that's, it's a part of us. And so what we do then is say, well, I'm just spiritual, meaning I'm open-minded enough to say there is something else out there, but heaven forbid, I'm not going to admit there is that guy out there. And this is what we do. I'm spiritual, but not religious. But we always are going to worship. Look what it says. There's this great exchange. Verse 22. Claiming to be wise, in our day that would be intellectual. In that day, uh, when Paul was writing, this is uh, the great philosophers and all these. It would have been a, a mix of humanism and secularism along, along with religious philosophy. In our day, it's going to be secular uh, intellectualism. Claiming to be wise, they actually became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So we will worship. The question is who we will worship. And the question is what will we worship? And in the end, if it's not God, it is an overt rejection of God. I hear this phrase every now and then. I feel it's my duty in life to ruin phrases that I hear Christians using. You're welcome. I'm going to get my worship on. Have you ever heard this phrase before? I'm going to get my worship on. Okay, and usually this is said, you're on the way to church, and you're going to hear, you know, uh, Seth's going to play the songs you like or something. I don't know. Seth, do you take requests? I no, he doesn't, by the way. <laughs> um, or you, you turn on the radio, and, and, and you hear uh, a Christian radio you song you really like. You turn on, oh, I'm going to get my worship on. I'm going to sing... Or maybe you're going to go to a concert, you got a, a, a Christian group you really enjoy listening to, and there's going to be a worship environment there. You go in there, you drive, oh, I can't wait to get my worship on. Bad news. You're always getting your worship on. It's, it's always happening. You don't need to tell us you're getting your worship on. If you are alive, you're getting your worship on. 
the question is, who or what are you worshiping? That's what's happening here. And by default, in the fallen human condition, all of us are going to be seeking to worship literally anything except God. Anything except God. Because we don't like the notion in our brokenness that there is somebody with the authority and sovereignty to tell us how we ought to live. That's why we're offended by that word wrath. The notion that how I live might cause offense to someone else and that God might have the audacity to say he's right on these matters. But there is good news for those who deny God, which is all of us. There is good news for all of us who deny God because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. One quick thing on this before we move to the next section of this scripture. This tells us a little bit about sin. We tend to think about sin. Sin is a naughty problem. The problem with sin is we do things that are naughty. We do things that are shameful. Or maybe if we have some semblance of self-control, maybe we don't do things that are shameful, but we think about and uh, ponder doing things that are shameful, which is, according to the Bible, no different than actually doing them. So we we think sin is a naughty problem. We do things that are gross, however you like to think about it. Or maybe you don't like to think about it. What we find out in this passage, sin is not primarily a shame problem or a naughty problem. What kind of problem is sin? Sin is a worship problem. We're designed to worship God, and God is rightly offended that we have rejected who he is. The sovereign God of the universe who has intention on how his universe ought to function. And we have rejected him personally by worshiping everything but him. And we have rejected him personally by living out a life of our own design in sin. Sin in our life is not primarily a doing, wanting to do things that are bad problem. Sin in our life primarily is a, I don't want to worship a God who is sovereign problem. But I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. There is good news for people like us who deny God. So the question is, if I have a worship problem, what does it look like? What does it look like to live my life not worshiping God? What does it look like if I am denying God? What are the symptoms of that? What can I be looking for in my life if I'm wondering, okay, maybe I wonder if the Bible says we all have a worship problem. What does that look like in my life? Well, here's what it is. I do what I want. You do what you want. There is good news for those who deny God, and there is good news for those who do whatever they want. What is it when we do whatever we want? We got a fancy word for that. It's called autonomy. Autonomy says this. I know what I want. And the ultimate authority of what I ought to have is me. Meaning what I want is the ultimate authority in my life. I know what I ought to have. I know what brings me delight. What brings me what I need. My desires and my passions and my motivations then become the key authority in my life. What needs to happen is whatever I want. So what do we call this? This is just simply self-worship. When I put on the throne of my life what I desire, instead of being on the throne of my life, God and his sovereignty and his purpose, I say, you know what really matters? Whatever I want. There is good news 
for those who do whatever they want. We're going to be down in verse 24, but we'll start with just this quick illustration. There was a director of a government agency down in California. It was a county. I don't have all the information because I didn't want to memorize all the info. So I'm going to give you a summary. So what this agency did is other agencies, county and city agencies, would go to this guy's agency and ask him to deliver services primarily primarily around health care. So a city or school district would go to this guy and say, listen, we need uh, dental checks in this school. We need this kind of health care over in, in this part of the neighborhood. And what this guy's agency would do is, is go and get contracts with local vendors to provide those health care services for these various agencies. This guy was really efficient at what he did. What he did was he took all of those requests and he uh, awarded those bids to companies he owned. Right? I mean, very efficient. So, and at, of course, they were doing the investigation. There was no uh, competitive bid process. He simply got the bid. So it turns out I got a company that does that. Uh, awards the bid to his company. He makes a tidy profit. What do we call that? It's called a conflict of interest. Because he's supposed to serve, above all else, the interests of the agency he leads. But instead, what he was serving is the interests of himself. And what were his interests? More money. He wanted more money. What would prevent him from this conflict of interest? An authority over him who would uh, prevent him from exercising this conflict of interest. Problem is, he figured that authority didn't apply, and he could operate without authority, without authority not knowing. And so there's a conflict of interest. So if there is no authority, if there is no God, what is right? If there is no God, what is right? What is good? And here's the answer from the scripture. What is right is whatever I want. If there's no authority that tells me what ought to be, then the authority will be whatever I want is the authority. That's what we see in this agency director. And that's what we see in the human condition as we've described. There is good news for those who deny God, but we need to understand this. Those who deny God aren't just merely being secular, aren't merely just being uh, humanist in philosophy. The, there is an agenda, either spoken or unspoken. If there is no God, then what? I get to do whatever I want because God then is the desires of my heart. If there is no God, I can do what I want and my passions and my appetites are what is true. The most true thing that I can know then is my appetites, are my passions. So therefore, I will worship whomever or whatever will give me what I want. So if money will give me what I want, I will worship money. If a relationship will give me what I want, then I will worship a relationship. If sexual intimacy will give me what I want, then I'll worship sexual intimacy. Whatever gets me what I want is what I worship in the absence of a holy other sovereign God. That is what's described here in Romans 24 through 32. Look at verse 24. Therefore, having denied God, as we've described, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to their impurity, to the dishonoring their bodies among themselves. They exchanged, exchanged the truth about God for a lie, excuse me, 
and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. So God gave them up, meaning humankind in our, when we have denied him, he led us over to our sin, knowing this, sin promises what it cannot deliver. Sin promises what it cannot deliver. What sin tells you is if you have this thing, you will finally be happy. You will be giddy, you will be excited, you will be fulfilled. So you go and get that thing, you discover if you are happy and excited, giddy or fulfilled, it is temporary. Then when that goes away, what does sin do? It tells you you're naughty. So it tells you to go headlong into this thing to finally find fulfillment. It doesn't fulfill you, and then it tells you how shameful you are. Ever, have you ever experienced this? Certainly not. Who, who has? We all know who. Second service. Some of you are going to go to birth services. You're going to realize I say the same thing to both. I throw you under the bus. And... So sin promises what it can't deliver. It then accuses you shamefully when you pursue it. And it says, now you feel shameful. Oh, but I've got a solution. You just chased the wrong thing. Yeah, you, chased, you were chasing alcohol. Well, of course, everybody knows that's going to... But you want to try money. Oh, money will do the trick. And then it doesn't do that. Okay, why don't you try sex? Okay, we'll try that. Then it doesn't do the trick. And that's what it does. That's, that's the chain. God gave us up to pursue that which could not give us what we want. The, the, the dirty little secret of sin is you will discover that when you get whatever you want, it isn't what you want. So God gave us over to our passions. Why do we find it so offensive when the Bible tells us that what we desire isn't right? And here's why. Because our identity becomes what we desire. Now, nothing feels more me and nothing feels more you than what you want. I want that. That's what I am. That's who I am. I want this thing. I'm the kind of person who desires this kind of car, or this kind of house, or this kind of meal, or this kind of person. Nothing seems more me than the appetites of my heart. So if you tell me that what I want is wrong, it feels like you're telling me who I am is wrong. But here's the thing. What do we define as merely defined by their behaviors? If somebody is merely defined by their appetites, what they want to eat, who they want to sleep with, and how they can stay alive the longest, what do we call those things? Animals. To be defined by instinctual appetite, congratulations, you're a mammal. I might suggest biblically, people made in the image of God are something other than merely mammals. We have an awareness of ourselves. We have an awareness of those around us. There is more going on with us than the function of our appetites. But we're told in modern culture, what I want is me, and to tell me I can't have what I want is to deny the value of me. And the Bible describes us a little differently. We aren't our appetites. Little illustration. Have your tastes changed in the last five minutes? Yes. Ten minutes ago, you thought you liked preaching. <laughs> Having come here today, you're like, this is a waste of time. Don't your appetites change? 
when you're younger, you like certain kinds of food and you like certain kinds of activity. And you like certain kinds of people. And then you get older. You've had this happen. A, a roommate in college. And when you were roommates in college, you could never imagine a world without that person existing. You show up 20 years later and you have a conversation and you think, why did I ever think this person was interesting? What has happened? You changed. They changed. Your appetites change. If your identity is your appetites. You will never know who you are because your appetites change constantly. If you don't believe me, ask anyone in the room with gray hair and they will admit to it. Yes, what I like then is not what I like now. The Bible has an inherent dignity of the human person which says you aren't merely your appetites. We are offended at the existence of God because God has the audacity to tell me that what I want might not be good. And I want to reject his existence because if my appetites are wrong, then he must be rejecting me. Actually, no. He is accepting us for how he made us to be. Not mere animals of appetite and passion, but creatures of worship. So there's good news for those who do whatever they want. For this reason, verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And here for two verses, he focuses on sexuality, which makes perfect sense. Because human sexuality from its very beginning was an expression of love and intimacy between people as well as a function of reproduction. And in the pursuit of our appetites, we take human sexuality, which is love, intimacy, and connection primarily designed to... Uh, illustrate the connection we have with God and we reduce that down to mere physical gratification. And in that reduction, that sexual expression comes in all kinds of forms. So if you happen to not be one who struggles with same-sex attraction, simmer down, little camper. My guess is you still have sexual dysfunction because we reduce, all humans reduce sexual brokenness down to mere physical gratification, and the Bible describes sexual gratification as much more than that. Human intimacy designed to illustrate how close God is with us. And he says, this is what happens when we pursue our appetites. Over time, they change, and we twist them, and they become something wholly other, and finally, at the end of the day, having twisted and changed and moved them, they are no longer satisfying. Because instead of worshiping the God who gave us appetites, we worship the appetite and they went and changed on us. So then he turns us over to these errors. And there's a long list here. We, we could cover a lot of these issues. It's not just human sexuality we're talking about here. Let me read some of these. These are a real list of uh, fun things to do on the weekend. Filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders. This is, sounds like a Baptist potluck. I mean, they left um, overeating out. What's that? Why, why is the word escaping? Gluttony. See, I knew, I, was, I knew what the word was. I just wanted to see who had it at the top of their... <laughs> Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil... Disobedient to parents. Anybody else go, what? Like, oh, we've got these lists of things that will get you in capital punishment. Oh, and by the way, disobedient to parents. And all the parents in the house, that's right. <laughs> Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. These are the fruits 
of the flesh. These, in fact, what this is, if you look at them closely, this is the description of a discontented life. This is the life of the person who has pursued whatever they want, or at least to some degree has pursued what they want. This is the end of that. The inverse of that is the fruit of the Spirit. That is the contented life is the fruit of the Spirit. You can look it up on yourself on your own, Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit. How do we find the fruit of the Spirit? Worship of God instead of ourselves. Not everybody does all the things. Because some of you are reading this and say, well, I don't do all these things. Not everybody does all the things, but these things in our life are the fruits of the flesh, the natural byproduct of pursuit of our appetites as an act of worship. The way we exchange those out for the fruits of the Spirit is to say no to our sin and say yes to worshiping God who is worthy. There is good news for those who deny God. Who is that? All of us. There is good news for those who do whatever they want. Who is that? It's all of us. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. Kind of, Paul writes similarly in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. We're going to close with this as we go into communion. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Stop there. The gospel is a good news answer to a bad news heart problem. If you think Romans chapter 1, 18 through 32, is a great list of what's wrong with our country, a great list of what's wrong with our culture, a great list of what's wrong with our community, or public schools, or the government, then you will not hear the good news. Because the good news is for those people. The good news is not for people who aren't those people. The good news of the gospel is only for God deniers and only for people who pursue those possessions. You will miss the good news if you aren't willing to admit Romans 1, 18 to 32 was for you. It wasn't for your country, for your culture, for your community. Now they need it too, but you will never hear the good news of the gospel if you won't finally get to the point and say, you know what? Yeah, that's me. The good news only applies to people who have a bad news heart problem, which is the pursuit of the flesh. Look at Ephesians 2 verse 4. But God, we love that, don't we? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. All of our sin is a worship problem. All of our sin is a worship of self or creation problem. We have rejected God because we don't like the notion that he is in charge. In the midst of that rebellion, God gave us Christ. In the midst of that rebellion, God gives us life by the grace of Christ through our faith. All of our sin is atoned for. And even the little ones are an expression of a worship problem. And it is, there's good news for sinners. There's good news for those of us who have a worship problem. There's good news for those of us who deny God, but God being rich in mercy.
Finally, this, you are not your appetites. Keeping in mind your appetites change over time. You are more than your passions. You are more than your desires. You are made in God's image and your appetites merely tell you that you're hungry for more than this world can provide. That's what C.S. Lewis tells us. You are hungry for more than this world can provide. What does it mean if God made you hungry for more than this world can provide? It means he will provide it but not in this world. There is a time coming where all our appetites will be satisfied and all of them will be an expression of worship to God and we call that eternity. So let's pursue our appetites by saying no to them now, saying yes to worship now and say, God, I trust you that heaven and glory will be good enough that the no for now is fine. There is good news for those who deny God and there is good news for those who do whatever they want.